You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon, reporting for WFHB. This is Deke Hager. And I'm Lucy Kellison. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, November 14, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro reported on the oral arguments of a recent Supreme Court case involving an Indiana nursing home. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, a public affairs program devoted to prison-related issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, your daily headlines. During the November 9th discussion of the City and County Convention Center, members of the joint discussion sparred over whether to move forward with the Convention Center as a 501c nonprofit or as a capital improvement board. County Councilor Jeff McKim provided his preference for the future of the convention center. First of all, my strong preference is that an expanded convention center be run by a public entity rather than a private one. And right now, the Capital Improvements Board still appears to be the best option for a public owner. Yes, some of the transparency and reporting requirements can be built into the bylaws of a private corporation, but what's the remedy for the public if those requirements are violated? If any member of the public believes that they have evidence that a public body, like the county council, has violated the open door law, they can contact the public access counselor. But what's the remedy for a member of the public with a with a private nonprofit corporation? I mean, I guess they can file a lawsuit, but that's you know that's a pretty high bar. I'd really like to see to hear the city administration address that issue. How can the public be given protection equivalent to that of a public body? Um, the other point I've heard against a public entity is that the commissioners would get a veto over any bonding, even though the bonding would be done on revenues controlled entirely by the city. And I just don't think that's the way it would need to work. The, the bonding would only have to go through the commissioners if the revenue source is statutorily directed to the CIB, which it isn't in the case of the food and beverage tax. The city would still be able to bond with their own food and beverage tax and with the city local income tax as a credit enhancement, as they proposed earlier. The city could still bond and have their bond approved by the city council and, and still use the public entity as a governance model. Uh, in fact, you know, what I, from what I see of the powers of a CIB, the city would have to have control of the bonding and would move forward with their own bonding and join in with the CIB for governance of the new as well as, uh, as the old facility. Now, you know, there clearly is an enthusiasm gap between the city and the county commissioners on moving forward with convention center expansion. That's, I think that's a fact. I understand that concern on the part of the city, but I do think the commissioners move to create the CIB earlier today demonstrates that they're willing to move forward. I really hope the city takes yes for an answer there. Mayor John Hamilton said he looks forward to the expansion of the convention center, hoping it will become a 501c nonprofit. We are very excited about moving forward. Uh, from the city administration, indeed enthusiastic about the new convention center expansion uh, since 2016. Uh, as we've outlined in great detail and publicly and with lots of notice and shared lots of documents, we do think the 501c3 approach is the better approach. And I'll talk a little bit about that if we can. Um, first, I do want to 
note that we've said for a long time, this is a long needed expansion. Um, the money has been dedicated to it. Uh, the markets are recovering. Uh, the, the legislature is watching. Uh, and of course, we're very comfortable and excited about the experience of helping steer a large project, as well as having the site identified and funding and all of that that you know. And indeed, we kind of have uh, a great fortune of having two hotels that are right nearby uh, that can become um, convention center hotels, as well as a garage, uh, a much expanded garage right nearby. So city administration is ready to um, help uh, a 51C3, a board, design and build uh, a new convention center expansion. Uh, with the land and the TIF money and the food and beverage uh, revenue, the TIF money that we use to help buy the land. Now, I want to make a couple points about it. First, uh, any new facility would be operated fully integrated with the current facility. There's no plan to do anything otherwise than having uh, the, the full convention center amenities and capacities uh, operated in an integrated way. And also make very clear that all this would be done coordinating with everybody. Um, from county commissioners to county council to all government entities, city council, of course, uh, including um, uh, private sector and including people who aren't as convinced or aren't as enthusiastic about it. I think that's fine to have at the table. Mayor Hamilton expressed concern about what he perceived as a lack of public notice at the latest county commissioners meeting, where the commissioners voted unanimously on an ordinance relating to the convention center. I have to just note it was a a shock, a surprised move at the 10 a.m. commissioners meeting. There was no notice uh, to any of us about that plan, uh, no sharing of the of the ordinance, um, and no real opportunity for public comment. Most of us didn't know what was going. Um, in fact, we called the county a county attorney this morning and said, hey, what is this topic? And they said, well, I, they don't know, and they'll find out at the meeting, and there's no draft that they had. And so anyway, that was a, a surprise and in my view, not very collaborative, but that's okay. Uh, we're trying to share all the documents. And But I do think this, I think we agree, uh, the comment was made, let's, let's let the community choose, um, council's community choose about what's the best path forward. I think it's kind of fine to have two options with the different views. It's, it's maybe not surprising there are different views about how to go forward because there's been a different view from the beginning. There were not everybody agreed with the MOU, which we tried to do. Not everybody agreed with the tax. Uh, so it's not a surprise that there are a couple of options of how to go forward. Uh, we'll be happy to share more details in the very short weeks ahead about a three-year process that we are ready to lead and take, take uh, help move forward with a 51C3 to build and open a facility by late 2025. It's basically a three-year process, at least, from when we pull the trigger on moving forward. If the choice, uh, the choice that people make to go another direction, uh, we're happy to kind of step back from the administration and step away and let that process go forward, make land available to purchase if that's what's desired, et cetera, et cetera. County Commissioner Penny Githens pushed back against Mayor Hamilton's comments, saying she believes a capital improvement board would be the best course of action. I'm a little disturbed by things I just heard. Um, you know, we've offered multiple meetings Mr. Mayor, and this is the first time you've shown up. So let's 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 stop that. Um, also, how would we get community input when we don't have an election going on? So um, we we've had a lot of community input. We've had time for community input. 
What I've heard, and I think I've knocked more doors recently than anybody else in the room, is that people in the community want this done. They are saying, we've paid the taxes for the food and beverage tax. Get off of the dime here. We've got to have something done. Um, with regard to the tort claim issues on a 501c3, I don't understand why a single cent of taxpayer dollars should be used to pay for any kind of liability insurance every year, not just one year, but every year um, when it's available at no extra cost under a CIB. And when you talk about a sharing of an ordinance today, that, that really rankles me. There was no sharing of plans for the annexation from your office. There was no sharing of purchase of the Bunga Robertson property when this happened. Um, there's just been a lot of non-sharing from your office. And so please, let, let's drop those things. Either we're going forward or we're not. And we are really convinced that a CIB is the best way to protect public assets, public tax dollars. And um, we've been saying this for several years now. Bloomington City Council member Susan Sandberg said she wants to move forward with the proposal for a capital improvement board because she believes the process would provide greater transparency. Thank you. It has always been my hope that we could do this together, city, council, and cooperation. Uh, I knew not about your plans to um, pass the CIB today, but I'm delighted to hear it, and I'd love to join forces with that effort, because I do agree that a public entity is much more transparent, it's much more accountable to the public, who, as Ms. Githens has pointed out, expects us all to work together, come together, and get on with this in a respectful, cordial manner. Um, so I am convinced this is the right way to go, and I would certainly be happy to uh, discuss any alternatives today. I, I I do want to address this enthusiasm gap too, because we hear this a lot that they don't want it, we do. Therefore, we should do this by ourselves. And I think that's been disrespectful because I'd like to hear from all of you what your true feelings are about this. And is there an enthusiasm gap? Because if there isn't, let's be done with that. Let's stop with the who wants it more and let's do this together. That's that's where I'm standing right now as one of nine on the city council. City council member Sue Scambarelli asked the members of the joint meeting how each entity feels regarding whether or not they want to move forward with the convention center as a nonprofit or a capital improvement board. County Commissioner Julie Thomas said that commissioners voted three and zero in favor of a CBI indicating their preference. Thomas elaborated on the perspective of the commissioners. I was likewise a little concerned by some of the language I heard um, from the administration today. Um, we'll, we'll take the lead. We don't need anybody to take the lead. We should be leading together um, collaboratively, as was promised to the county council Back in 2018, when they passed the food and beverage tax, they were told, we're going to work collaboratively with the county. Um, if the city administration does not trust the commissioners, that's, I can't help that. But what we can say is that it is important to note that we do trust the county council and the city council to pay attention to this. 
um, and to do the right thing. They're going to have to make a decision about whether they're okay with a 501c3 structure or not. And um, the reason we passed the Capital Improvement Board uh, ordinance today, and the reason it will expire at the end of the year if nobody does anything, is because we see this as the only viable alternative. And it will ensure that we're working together. It will ensure that the Capital Improvement Board is leading, as is appropriate. And it will ensure that taxpayer dollars are accounted for using public access counselor if needed. It will make sure that the meetings are uh, not only public, but where public comment will be in invited and uh, will be part of the process. Full transparency. And that's what we're looking for. During public comment, President of the Bloomington Chamber of Commerce, Eric Spoonmore, said that either approach would work for the chamber. He applauded the joint members for making progress on the future of the convention center. I just want to thank you all for convening this meeting today. I know um, this is a complex project. And, you know, with these types of projects, we have to navigate the turbulence before we can get to the clean air. And to me, this meeting today represents some of the most substantive progress that we've made on this expansion uh, in six years. And so, you know, whether the final outcome is through this ordinance, uh, 2022-46 with a CIB, or whether it's through a 501c3, either option is fine with us. To me, the word of the day is dithering. We just don't want any more dithering with this. And so I think both structures will work well. Obviously, a uh, capital improvement board has had you know, multiple examples of that being successful in the state of Indiana. Um, I think the 501c3 uh, option is a very thoughtful approach, but agree with the commissioner, uh, commissioner Thomas and what others have said that ultimately this is going to come down, I think, to what the county council wants to see and what the city council wants to see. And so just really want to encourage the leadership of the county council and leadership of the city council to have an expeditious discussion about this with your colleagues. Um, and I don't know what that outcome looks like, whether it's passing a resolution, sending it back to the commissioners, but something that will uh, demonstrate what you all want to do to move forward. And the chamber wants to be here to support and facilitate those discussions as much as we can. Uh, I am just, uh, I'm really proud of, of what happened here today. And I think this has been very constructive. I know not everybody's gonna agree. No, but we don't all have to agree. But uh, at the end of the day, what we want is to achieve uh, shared goals that will have a positive impact on the community. And sometimes that's what these discussions look like. So thank you all again. Really, really appreciate all the thoughtful work that you put into this. The city and county convention center discussion will happen again on an as-needed basis. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro reported on the oral argument of a recent Supreme Court case involving an Indiana nursing home. We turn now to the latest installment of Shapiro's report. Civil or not, the court case of Televsky versus Marion and the debate over a private right to sue.
Last Tuesday, a court case sure to shape the future of healthcare civil rights reached its crescendo within the highest institute of justice. The court case concerns a private individual, the late Georgi Televsky, and on the other side, the Marion Health and Hospital Corporation, which operates the nursing home that Mr. Televsky brided in. The two questions in the case include, one, individuals can sue the government if they are not benefiting from federal health care programs, and two, Does the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act give individual rights for patients to sue if their medication and transfer rights are violated? In 2016, Talevsky's family placed him in a nursing home in Valparaiso to treat his worsening dementia. The nursing home was owned by the Health and Hospital Corporation, which is a government entity. The family of Talevsky and the nursing home disagreed over medication and multiple transfers to other facilities. The nursing home alleged that Talevsky acted in a violent and aggressive manner and could not control him, according to court documents. Meanwhile, Talevsky's family argues that the nursing home abused him and violated his individual rights. Lawrence Robbins, attorney for the Health and Hospital Corporation, provided the opening argument for the plaintiff. Chief Justice John Roberts questioned Robbins on the protection of individual rights under the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act of 1987. The key to spending clause statutes, this court said in Arlington Central School District, quote, is what the states are clearly told regarding the conditions that go along with the acceptance of federal funds. Among the most costly conditions that may go along with the acceptance of federal funds is exposure to private litigation under Section 1983. States are therefore entitled, in our view, to clear notice that they will be subject to such private lawsuits if they they accept spending clause money. At common law, third parties generally could not sue to enforce government contract rights unless the contract clearly specified that the breaching party would be liable to injured third parties. Because the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act contains no such clear statement, it should not give rise to Section 1983 liability. But even if a clear notice rule is not required, the two purported rights that respondent invokes under FINRA do not give rise to Section 1983 claims. First, FINRA and its implementing regulations provide a comprehensive suite of remedies, including a more restrictive private remedy, that forecloses Section 1983 relief. On this dispositive point, the U.S. Solicitor General agrees with us. Second, the two rights respondent invokes are not unambiguously phrased in terms of the persons benefited. Instead, the two rights invoked here today are but a small piece of an overarching set of requirements addressed to nursing facilities that receive federal money. And the command to protect and promote those rights are system-wide commands, not an unambiguous assurance of individual entitlement. What do you, For, mean, what do you mean by system commands? Uh, in the, that, uh, as in blessing, the language of the statute, Mr. Chief Justice, is directed to the rights of uh, the, uh, the, the obligation of the nursing facility to uh, take care of the entire system and not 
focused on any particular individual. The language protect and promote. To promote something, it seems to me, evokes the notion that you are looking out at the whole system in which you promote and protect a certain right. No, I, I think you have a stronger argument on promote, though, than you have on protect. Yes. And, and the, the uh, statute uses both and then, you know, uh, lists a variety of rights. And it seems to me that if you're supposed to protect those rights and you're the person who's responsible for conferring, uh, living up to those rights, that, that seems to me that it ought to be sufficiently direct uh, under, under Blessing or Gonzaga or... Robbins argued that states should be advised of the standards they will be held to and the penalties they will face should they accept federal funds for public entities such as nursing homes. Justice Kagan asserted that the nursing home should have made sure Talevsky's rights were not violated under FINRA. Robbins responded... I guess I'm just not sure, Mr. Robbins, what that, what that gets you. It's a big statute. It does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is to say every nursing facility has to ensure that individual rights are respected and lays out in considerable detail what those rights are and say it's your job to see that those rights are fulfilled. Yeah. Well, again, uh, it is our view that um, taken as a whole, this, these are directions to the nursing facilities, even subsection C, which is the uh, the one in which these rights can be found, begins with the command, the nursing home shall. Uh, and, and so, you know, if you're asking the question... Well, it's true that the nursing home is involved in this because the nursing home is the entity that's supposed to respect the individual rights that are laid out. I mean, you have to think that any individual right imposes a correlative duty on somebody, and here it's the nursing home that it's supposed to make sure that those rights are not violated. I, I don't disagree with that at all, Justice Kagan. What I do think, however, is that my threshold argument uh, is based on the common law at the time Section 1983 was enacted and on federalism and separation of powers principles. But if we are now in the guts of question two, uh, I would suggest that uh, the individual uh, um, uh, patient is not the unambiguous focus of this statute. Justice Brent Kavanaugh agreed with Kagan that the nursing home should have prioritized Talevsky's individual rights based on the wording of the statute. I mean, it says rights. It's very uncomfortable fact for you is yes. that the statute well, says rights over and over again. Yes, precisely. I mean, and, and no less so uh, did... Residence rights. Too. Yes, of course it says rights. Uh, this court has twice faced that precise circumstance, Justice Kavanaugh, with a long section of bill called Bill of Rights in Section 6010 of the Rehab Act of 73. That wasn't enough. The chief, then Chief uh, Justice Rehnquist, said for the court that we don't pick out little words like rights. A point repeated by this court uh, uh, in 2002 in footnote 7 of Gonzaga. The mere fact that the word right is sprinkled through the statute, obviously I don't dispute that, is not enough to get you over the unambiguous focus hurdle. Justice Sonia Sotomayor then questioned Robbins about legal precedent prior to Section 1983's passage in 1871. Counsel, 
do you dispute the amici legal historian's <coughs> point that the prevailing rule in American common law in the 1870s, before 1983 was passed, yes. permitted third-party beneficiaries to sue? I absolutely do. And I'm so glad you... So that's, a, that's just a matter of our reading of history. If we disagree with you, well, uh, what, what, what's left? Well, can, can, can I just perhaps answer the question by suggesting where they got it wrong and where instead we, the court may wish to be looking? Okay. Um, uh, what they are saying, uh, what, they, they quote a particular secondary uh, article uh, in which somebody to actually be more than, went to the trouble. There was more than one, but let's keep going. The, the, in which somebody actually went to the trouble of adding up all the cases and then saying 72% of these uh, were allowed and 62% of these were allowed. But if you look at footnote 22 of the principal source they rely on, you will see that the author cut out from his sample all the so-called incidental beneficiary cases, which are the ones we say are most like a spending clause statute. In other words, the game was rigged. It, it, the, it, the, the, the denominator was gerrymandered to gin up very high numbers. But if you go back and look at all of the government-to-government contract cases, and I've looked at a fair bit of them, uh, you will find that unless the government contract called out the plaintiff, for example, Schneier, uh, 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 the Schneier case from 1918 uh, in New York, or uh, uh, the little uh, uh, the little case that it cites uh, from 1880, uh, in those cases they said, um, you know, these were the water company and fire company cases of the 19th century. Um, Generally speaking, if your house burned down because the water company didn't put enough water in the hydrants, you were out but of luck. But none of those contracts. I'm sorry? The incidental contracts are different than the ones you even admit if you call out the plaintiff. Isn't that what Blessing and Gonzaga are saying? No. I, if I, the contract is giving a right to a particular class of people— that is a third-party beneficiary. No, I, I, I respectfully suggest that it is not, because if you look at the cases I've just described, what you will find is that the contract had a, uh, for example, Schneier is a, is a water company case, and it said, in substance, uh, if you don't deliver the water, uh, you will be liable to anyone who is injured. In the little case from 1880. But that's what 1983 says. If I confer a government right on you, the state is going to be liable if it violates the law, that right. No. Well, actually, what it says is if it violates a right secured by law. And exactly. What is, and and what if is, I have a right under the law to a certain thing that the, the government has contracted with a provider to give me. Uh, 1983 says I can go to court. Well, I, I, I don't think it's quite that simple. I think what is secured by law depends, among other things, on how 1983 would have been understood at the time it was enacted. And at that time, you could not sue on a government-to-government -government contract unless, and this is the general state of the law, as Cummings directs us to look at, uh, not little outliers from the uh, regression curve, but the main curve that 
that joins most of the cases. What you will find, Justice Sotomayor, is that when somebody had the right to sue, somebody whose house burns down or somebody who doesn't get a benefit from a government contract, the contract said you will be liable to third parties if you breach this contract. Except that, as Justice Alito pointed out, this spending clause provision provides that all other remedies of law, i.e. 1983, are not superseded. No. Uh, I, I, I didn't take Justice Alito to be agreeing with that proposition, uh, and I certainly do not agree with that proposition. The language of the, of the savings clause says these are in addition to laws provided by statute, constitution, and common law. And this Court has said in several cases that the reference to statutes is to statutes other than the very statute containing the savings clause. That means other than FINRA. And if it means other than FINRA, which is the way I read it and the way this Court has read it more than once, uh, then they have no claim. Because okay, you can't, because FINRA is not a statute other than FINRA itself. Tomorrow, we continue our analysis of the arguments presented before the Supreme Court, such as the state of Indiana's perspective, a neutral take by the assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General, and the family of Tulevsky. That tomorrow on the Disabulletin's Civil or Not, the court case of Tulevsky v. Marion and the debate over a private right to sue. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolar.com. Thank you.